and Savior, King of us all, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore whoever humbles himself, as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast in the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ is telling His disciples today that if they want to enter the kingdom of heaven, they have to become like little children. And one of the warnings that He says to the disciples and to us, He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So this actually... Asks, uh, causes us to sometimes ask a question, is there greater punishment for someone who encourages and leads others to sin than those who are just simply sinning themselves? And so answering that question is kind of tricky because it depends what you mean by the word worse. Worse in what way? Right? If, if we commit sin and we don't repent, we're going to suffer the second death. If we cause others to sin and we don't repent, we will suffer the second death. So the punishment is the same. So we could say that neither is worse than the other, but both cases, the end result is hell. Sin is sin, and sin leads, unrepentant sin leads to judgment. So in one sense, no sin is worse than another, if we think in terms of sort of final destination. But some sins are worse in terms of their consequences, especially in this life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, taught that anger is as bad as murder, and that both lead to condemnation. He says that in chapter 5 of the book of the Gospel of St. Matthew. But the earthly consequences of murder are much greater than anger. Right? We, we definitely wouldn't say to somebody, since anger and, mur- and murder both sort of lead to the same place, there's no difference at all between them. You might as well murder somebody if you're angry at them. 
Causing someone to fall away or to sin is an exceedingly grave sin. No wonder our Lord Jesus Christ's next words are, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Both the person who falls away or who sins, and also the one who causes the sin will end up in eternal condemnation. But of course, the one who incites another person to sin bears a heavy responsibility. Which explains, sort of he's talking about, a millstone hanging around their neck. Another proof of the difference of gravity of sin is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ's interaction with Pontius Pilate. Pilate asks him where he's from and becomes angry when our Lord Jesus Christ refuses to answer him. And Christ reminds Pilate that the authority that Pilate exercises, he is able to exercise because it's given to him from God. And he says, yet the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So the person who has the greater sin, he could have meant Ananias or Caiaphas or Judas. But our Lord Jesus Christ clearly thinks the people or person who handed him over committed a worse sin than Pilate did. Right? Both Pilate and the other persons sinned, but some sins are worse than others. The one who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ to Pilate took the initiative to do away with Christ. While Pilate sort of reacted into the situation that he found himself in. You can think of another example, like the kings in Israel and in Judah. One of the messages in First and Second Kings is that the nation kind of goes as the king goes. A godly king has a good effect on the nation, but a wicked king drags down the nation and oppresses the nation. And the book of Proverbs says, a wicked ruler over a helpless people is like a roaring lion or a charging bear. And in First and Second Kings, the downfall of Israel has a lot of different causes. But the scripture, time and time and time again, goes back to the sin of Jeroboam. Because he bore a special responsibility as the first king, the one who led the nation into idolatry and into wickedness. So we have indications that those who sin more grievously endure a greater punishment. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of St. Luke, that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So it seems fair to, to understand from these verses that there are different levels of punishment in eternity. And those who have sinned more grievously which include those who incite others to sin, bear a heavier responsibility. So then, when it says, whoever causes the little ones to sin, who are these little ones? The phrase, one of these little ones, our Lord Jesus Christ uses a couple times in the Gospels. And it's actually also used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Here, little ones is referring to God's people. And our Lord Jesus Christ uses this as a way of talking about His disciples. He actually quotes this particular prophecy. And it says, then, in, then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So He is calling His disciples children in other places and in another, and He is referring to them in a similar way. In the Gospel of St. Mark, for example, it says, And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. 
So when you see in these verses, these little ones or, or these children are uh, the disciples, the followers, the people who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. But it might also focus on a certain subset of the disciples. Those who are new to the faith, those who are weak, those who are immature, those who are unlearned, and maybe because of those things, more vulnerable. That's why there is such a concern about their well-being, that they're not be made to stumble. That same special concern we see a few verses later uh, in the same chapter of uh, St. Matthew. He says, See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. God has a special concern for those people. So then the second question is, what does it mean to stumble? What does it mean to make them stumble? The, the, the picture of somebody stumbling is somebody sort of walking along and they trip over an obstacle and then they fall. And that should apply pretty well to the Christian life. You are walking along your path with Christ, but something trips you up, maybe makes you fall, and makes you stop following Christ. The end result is that person falls into sin or gives up their faith. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, where Jesus talks about this, it's connecting to going astray or perishing. The last part of the verse that we talked about shows that this is serious. It's a stern warning to the disciples, to everyone, to be careful how we treat the little ones. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, our Lord Jesus Christ says, it's better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. By the way, just for some context, millstone is a, is a, is a big, huge rock that was used to grind grain so that you should make bread. There was kind of like a handheld kind but the one that our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about is a much larger kind that required like a horse or a donkey to push it around, to be harnessed to it, in order for it to work. One of those stones could easily, they weigh several thousand pounds. It'd be similar like if you think about like, when you think about like gangster movies and they say like, when you put cement shoes on the person and put them in the water, right? They're going to immediately sink straight to the bottom of the sea. But the point here is that it would be better then the judgment you will receive if you cause a little one to stumble. This is how important little ones are to God. So then we should shift this and, and, and see how does this apply to us? Who are the little ones among us? Certainly, like I said before, it applies to new Christians who have just begun their walk with Christ. Also can apply to immature Christians who are older in years but maybe have not grown in their spirituality. Also unlearned Christians who still don't know much about the Word of God, tradition, the life of a Christian. It applies to weak Christians. right? We can all fit under one of these categories because we all have specific weaknesses and under the right pressure could stumble. Children with childhood faith who are still coming to an adult faith. The category is really covering everyone in one way or another. So how do I cause someone to stumble? I can think of like a, a number of examples. You know, we can have, for example, a new believer coming to the church and they're eager to learn. They're full of questions, they're curious about a lot of things. And you, you know, you know things about the church, you're maybe a Sunday school teacher, but you get start to get annoyed with the person's questions. They never seem to stop. And they don't understand the most basic things. And you're frustrated because you can't get through the things that you want to do. And you complain one day to a friend, and you say, you know, can you believe what this person asked me today? And they were wondering, you know, and then insert some sort of silly question. 
And then all of a sudden this person overhears it or understands that this person is sort of looking down on them. They thought they could come to you as a teacher, but they clearly heard sort of your contempt and your condescension. And they're upset and so they weren't interested to learn any more about the church. Or maybe they were caused to stumble and, and fall from the church. When others later tried to get them back to return them, they said they wouldn't go to a place where somebody would say something like that to someone who wants to learn. And so they stopped following Christ. What is the impediment that stumbled that person? You, your words, your actions. This type of thing can happen in a, a bunch of different ways. Well, another very common way that I think it happens a lot is when thinking about alcohol. You feel or you feel justified in drinking wine in moderation. You say, you know, people drink wine in the Bible and that all I have to do is make sure that I'm not drunk. But there is a Christian in your church who, whether they've struggled with alcoholism or maybe they're not, they've never drank before or have little no experience with alcohol and you have them over and you offer them something to drink. And why not, right? You, have, you are living in the, the, the life of freedom. Right? St. Paul says we're not under the burden of the law, we're in the law of freedom. So this person sees you drinking even though they know it's very dangerous for them to drink. They think, well you're a mature Christian, you know the Bible really well, and so it's probably okay. And they partake. And sure enough, by this person, by this happening, even if they don't take, their resolve is weakened and begins a pattern. For you, you thought to yourself, drinking wine is not a sin for me. But for this person, drinking alcohol led to sin. Instead of thinking of their need, thinking of their weakness, you are focused on your freedom. But you've caused them to stumble into sin. What's the obstacle that tripped them up? You, your words, your actions. Direct enticement to sin could come about through bad advice, counsel, the ungodly counsel, giving unbiblical advice that will promote sin. Somebody who is giving such advice causes people to stumble. Those people are in grave danger of being addressed one day with the same words that our Lord Jesus Christ said, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When you are giving advice, you should be sure and be careful that it is biblically sound advice. Direct inducement to sin also comes when you're trying to get someone to agree with your own sinful practice. You're okay with some form of entertainment that you know to be immoral. And you try to convince your husband, your wife, your friends to partake with you because you don't want to feel alone. You don't want to feel by yourself. People also can be made to stumble through our actions. The example that we set could lure a person into sin as they imitate us. This is especially important in the home. Children are very easily impressionable. They emulate what our, their parents are doing. We need to also understand that new Christians and immature Christians are very impressionable. And because maybe they're not yet fully acquainted with the Word of God, they often end up believing that godliness is whatever those mature Christians that know more than me and have been here longer than me are doing. When in fact that might not be the case. Here are questions I should ask myself. How faithful am I to God and to my family? What is my attitude towards tithing? What do I watch 
on TV? What movies do I go to see? What kind of employee am I? What kind of clothes do I wear? It can be a stumbling block by the manner also in which you deal with others. When you speak, do you speak the truth in love? Or do you speak with a condemning judgment that our Lord Jesus Christ warned about also in the Gospel of St. Matthew? Do you respond to other believers in ways that will build them up or tear them down? Parents especially are told in Ephesians, do not provoke your children to anger. And in Colossians, St. Paul also says, Fathers, do not exacerbate your children that they may not lose heart. The principles, by the way, in these verses have wider applications than even just for parents and their children. Frustration and anger can easily result when you show, for example, favoritism or you demand unrealistic expectations. If you're critical more than encouraging, you can cause another person to lose heart. When you're insensitive, unloving, unkind, you can cause fellow members of the body of Christ to fall into sin. So it's an opportunity this morning for us to examine myself. Am I causing someone to stumble? Am I a stumbling block to somebody? In my words, in my actions. Because our Lord Jesus Christ warns us very clearly that there are great consequences for being a stumbling block to others. May we be light of the world and salt of the earth as our Lord Jesus Christ called us. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.